we are looking this evening at Isaiah 53. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 53. Um, Arguably the most well-known and most loved of all of the Old Testament passages. Um, I remember as a boy reading Isaiah 53 recurrently, my children have memorized it, no doubt. Many of your children know it well. And it is, it is, the, it is the clearest, the clearest of all of the Old Testament passages that focus on the Lord Jesus and reveal him. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a slight to you that we are jumping to the very end of this book and missing everything that leads up to it. Uh, There are four servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 50, and then beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 21, I'm sorry, 52, 13, through the end of 53. They are are what theologians have called the four servant songs of Isaiah. They, They speak very clearly of the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And uh, we are going to look tonight at Isaiah 53. I'd like us to go back, though, to where this section begins, to chapter 52, verse 13, and to read down to chapter 53, verse 12. Mm -hmm. Isaiah, having introduced the servant of the Lord in, in chapter 42, now picks up on this in what is the last of the servant songs, and, and this is what theologians have called the, the song of the suffering servant. It's the fourth movement in these songs. And now Isaiah says, and really Jehovah says through him, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they will see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. 
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Isaiah 53 is um, the clearest of all the Old Testament passages that set forth the Lord Jesus. Um, If you want what is one of the best books in church history on this, find yourself a copy of John Brown of Edinburgh's The Sufferings and Glories of the Messiah. It's a really marvelous book, if you can get a hold of that, in which John Brown of Edinburgh walks through every section, breaking down the construction, breaking down the, the meaning of this in a way that really a lot of other commentators have not. We know the language very well. Most of us can probably quote huge portions of Isaiah 53. I remember as a boy knowing definitively that this was about the Lord Jesus. It is such a clear presentation of Christ that it has sometimes been called the fifth gospel or the gospel of Isaiah. Um, It is so clear. I think I told you a story not long ago about the biblical counselor, Rich Gans, who was a Jew, and he was going to a convention and he was met with a Christian group that was witnessing to people in this convention hall and was asked if if uh, he would let this man read a portion of God's word to him and, and Gans consented to it, and the man began reading Isaiah 53, and Gans quickly cut him off and said, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. And the man said, but your Isaiah is the one that set him out. And Gans was converted. Because it is such a clear and such a potent and focused exposition of who Jesus is, 700 and probably 30 to 50 years before Christ came. The clearest exposition. It is full of what we might say are the essentials of Christianity. You have in Isaiah 53 doctrines like the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Notice at the very end, we've been in Romans for many months now. Notice notice the very end of this. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Everything that Paul is unpacking in those first five chapters of Romans, the imputation of righteousness. You have the doctrine of substitutionary atonement everywhere. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You have the doctrine of the the penal judgment of God directed against the eternal Son of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put his soul to grief. You have, the, you have the high priestly nature of the Lord Jesus. There were two things that the high priest was to do in the Old Testament. He was to sacrifice 
and he was to intercede. And the first half of this section is all about the sacrificial offering of the Lord Jesus up in the place of his people. And then at the very end, notice again that look at the very last verse. He bore the sin of many, sacrificing himself as the Lamb of God, and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's the high priest. There are litanies of what we would say are the absolute essential doctrines of Christianity strewn through this chapter. I would argue tonight, before we look at this in some detail, I would argue that Isaiah 53 is the greatest internal evidence in Scripture of the truthfulness of Christianity. There is absolutely no way that Isaiah could have written with such precision 700-some years before Christ came exactly what we read in the New Testament. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that Isaiah 53, various portions of Isaiah 53, are quoted explicitly seven times in the Gospels or the New Testament epistles, and it has been estimated 85 to 90 either citations or allusions or elusive allusions to different parts of this strewn throughout the New Testament. That's remarkable. Uh, You'll remember when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in in Matthew 8, and after he heals her, uh, it says that, that... Um, He bore the infirmities of his people. Matthew quotes Isaiah 53. Now, he sees Jesus as offering physical healing, but he sees that as part of what points to the greater healing that Christ came to do. You'll remember that Peter in in 1 Peter chapter 2 says that um, he he bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, we are healed. Recurrently, the biblical Authors are appealing to this. And then we think of the significance of Isaiah 53 there in Acts when when Philip has seen that great revival in Samaria and then the spirit carries him out into the wilderness and he finds the Ethiopian eunuch and he's reading Isaiah 53 and he says, who is the prophet talking about? How can I understand unless someone helps me? And Philip, the evangelist, preaches Christ to him and his eyes are open and and he understands and he sees the glories of Christ, the sufferings and the glories of Christ. What I want us to do tonight, though, is to see Isaiah 53 in its context. And I want us to see the two divisions, really, this This chapter has been divided up five different ways. It has been divided up two different ways, but there is an essential division, I think, of two parts that I want us to consider. First, I want us to consider the rejection of the Lord's servant, and then I want us to consider, secondly, the attraction of the Lord's servant, the rejection of the Lord's servant, and then the attraction of the Lord's servant. Well, notice that Uh, Having introduced the idea that the servant of the Lord is going to act wisely, that he is going to be lifted up and exalted there in chapter 52, verse 13, as as Isaiah now moves into chapter 53, the voice changes. The one speaking changes. It is gone from Jehovah speaking, Yahweh, speaking about his servant. And now Isaiah is speaking, but Isaiah is speaking in the plural. He says, notice in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, in all likelihood, uh, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of all those true believing remnant Israelites in his day. 
You'll remember all the way back in chapter 1, Isaiah will say, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become just like Gomorrah. There was always just a remnant of old covenant Israelites who were looking forward and hoping in the coming Christ. You'll remember when when Jesus is born and, and Mary carries him into the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. And there's that collaboration between Simeon, the, the aged prophet, and Anna, the prophetess. And they all come together. And, and after Anna sees him, she leaves the temple. And Luke tells us she went and spoke of him to all who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. That means that not all were. And so what Isaiah is doing here is he's he's setting up for us and he's setting up for old covenant Israel here that the fact that that this glorious message of the sufferings and glories of the redeemer were were despised and rejected by the better part of people in the old covenant church. Notice notice this question, who has believed what he heard from us? Listen to this. Eric Alexander said, Isaiah 53 is basically a statement of belief about the death of Jesus, but it begins not with a statement of belief, but with a statement of unbelief. It begins with a question, a question posed in such a way that it expects the answer, not very many. Alexander says, who has believed our report? And the answer is not very many have believed it. Now, that ought to be uh, very weighty for us to understand that that such a glorious message is received by so few. That was true in the Old Testament, and even though in the New Testament God's kingdom expands and the nations are incorporated into his kingdom and God is redeeming a people of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, and there is growth and expansion, it is still few in compared to the many who will reject this message. Now, the question is, why do they reject such a glorious message? Why would anyone reject such a glorious message? Well, it's very interesting. John picks up on that first verse in John chapter 12, and Jesus has been doing miracles, and and his rejection among the Jewish people is growing. It's increasing. They're seeing his miracles. They're not believing on him. They're seeing what he's doing. They're hearing what he's teaching. They're raging against him. They hate what he's saying. They hate what they're seeing. And John says this in John 12, 37 and 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is it that makes them reject him? Well, notice verse 2. Um, the Messiah would not have anything external about him that would be attracted to men. You know, whether we are honest or not, we are all captive so often to judging by our eyes. We like people that are put together well, are gifted, have the external attractions. Um, that's really to our shame. We like those things we can see and hear, the tangibles, the externals of people. But notice what, what the first thing Isaiah says, the first reason men have not believed in him and will not believe in him is, is that it was unexpected. His arrival was unexpected. Notice this. He grew up before him, and that is Christ grew up before 
God the Father, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. You'll remember that that spiritually Israel was barren. When Christ came, it was almost entirely apostate. And, And Christ grew up out of the dry, barren ground unexpectedly. And the people didn't want that. They were content where they were. They were content in their spiritual barrenness. They were content in the situation in which they found themselves. Um, I think in one very real sense, this is what Jesus' first miracle displayed when he turned water to wine, those ceremonial pots that the Jews had, and, and, and those empty water pots that didn't have any wine in them. They couldn't produce any joy, but the people were content with that emptiness. They were content with rituals that they made up. They were content with man-made rules and regulations. They were content in, this, in the condition they were in. But Christ comes... And he grows up like a root out of dry ground. And then notice this. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing physically impressive or attractive about the Lord Jesus. In fact, I'm very thankful that we don't have images of Christ because we would all make the Lord Jesus to be far more attractive than he would have been in the flesh. Isaiah tells us there was nothing attractive about him. In fact, when the people saw him, they said things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When the people heard him, they said, is not this the carpenter's son? Um, Are not his sisters and brothers with us? They were offended. They, They stumbled over him. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He didn't come with great power. He didn't come with great military might. He had no place to lay his head. When he needed money, he had to have a fish bring it to him. There was nothing external about Jesus that made people say, I want to be with him. And so they were offended by him because he was a root out of dry ground and he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. Now, let me say this. The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus is fairer than the sons of men that he is chief among 10,000, that no man ever spoke like him, that he is so glorious that when he took his disciples in the Mount of Transfiguration, the only way that the gospel writers can describe his beauty and glory is that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white, brighter than any launderer could make them. Um, Listen to this. John Brown says this. I want you to listen carefully. He was in truth all fair. There was no spot in him. He was chief among 10,000. The glory of God was in his countenance. He had a glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. He was all glorious. But it was all within. I want you to think about that. It was all within. It was in who he was as the divine son incarnate. His glory was veiled. It was a veiled glory, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It was all within. And Brown said they had no eyes to behold such glories. Why is it that so few believe the report about the Lord's servant is because they did not have eyes to see it. He had none of the qualities they looked for in their deliverer. Now, While the kingdom of God is advancing today and many multitudes have believed in the Lord Jesus, the same is still true for so many in this world. They can hear about him. 
They can, they can know what the scripture teaches about them, but they have no eyes to see that internal glory and beauty. They cannot see. The glory is hidden from them. Now, there are more reasons. It's not just the unexpected nature of his arrival. It's not just the fact that there's no external attraction to the Lord Jesus, but it's, it's because he was marked by sorrows and sufferings. The very thing that we're going to talk about being the attraction of Christ becomes a revulsion to those who will not believe in him. Notice, notice what Isaiah says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, if we talk about someone who's intelligent, we say that's a man of intellect. We're saying the whole of him is marked by that. If we say someone has great wealth, we might say that's a man or a woman of great means or wealth. That's what marks them, the whole of them. When, when Isaiah says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, he's saying the totality of his life was marked by sorrows. You know, we read of, we read of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. We're going to read about those here in a minute, but... But I've often thought about, you know, when when we have been on the receiving end of the rejection of others, um, maybe it's someone we really liked a lot, or maybe it's someone's friendship we wanted, or whatever, that weighs on us. We feel a heaviness from that. Imagine the grief and the sorrow that the Lord Jesus felt being rejected by his own brothers and sisters, by his own countrymen, by Everyone, everywhere he went, how that would have weighed on the one who gave life and breath to everyone. I'm always struck by that verse in John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What a, what a weight that must have been on the holy soul of the Lord Jesus. The only reason he came into the world was to save sinners. And, and in coming into the world, he was rejected and he was despised. Um, you know, I know this is true, and, and I've heard this said when people are grieving and they're sorrowful. Nobody wants to be around sorrowing people. It's, it's one of the tragic features of this life. People want to be about happy people, joyful people, exciting people. The Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, that's one of the big reasons why Isaiah says they hid, as it were, their faces from him. Listen to this. Um, John Brown again says this. The Jews expected a prosperous and happy prince for their Messiah. But the Messiah, when he came, was distinguished by the unparalleled number, variety, and severities of his suffering, both bodily and mentally. He was, above all other men, the man who knew affliction by the rod of God's wrath. What a, what a striking thought. That, that, that sums up the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. He was born to suffer. He was born to know sorrow. Now, those are... The bulk of the reasons, there is one other reason why men despised him and rejected him and and would not believe in him. And that is because the nature of what he came to do necessitated that they would have to understand that he was only here because of their sin and their unrighteousness. 
and they didn't want to be convicted of their sin and their unrighteousness. Jesus said, you will not believe in me because you will die in your sins. Because Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. They will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. You see this cumulative nature, don't you? The unexpected coming, no external attraction, the fact that he's marked by sorrows, and now he exclusively came into the world to deal with the sins and the unrighteousness of men, and they did not want to be convicted of their sin. Notice, I think Isaiah, as he moves into chapter, verses 4 and on, he's, he's bringing that forward, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Think of this. When he hung on the cross, they said, let God help him now. He's, he's stricken by God. This, this wicked deceiver is stricken by God, but he was hanging there for the sins of his people. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice this. Notice this. He was cut off, verse 8, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Now, the better part of men in Israel, in Isaiah's day, in Christ's day, and really, the better part of the people in the world throughout human history have, have responded in the same way by hating all these things about the Lord Jesus. But all of those things, Isaiah is telling us, and now he is reversing the order, all of those things are what attract us most to him. Isn't that amazing? The very things that the world and unbelievers despise about him and reject him for are the very things that draw us to him. Now, I want us to consider how this chapter, very briefly, is divided into two other sections, two divisions, noting the attraction of the Lord's servant. Number one, his sufferings, and number two, his subsequent glories. You know, really, the whole of the Old Testament is about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. We see that on the Emmaus Road when Jesus tells those two, and then after that to the disciples, that ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, and then to enter into his glory. Peter will say that all of the prophets, in, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, all the prophets spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, almost nothing captures that so well as Isaiah 53. We saw that recently in Psalm 22, but if you would look with me, beginning in verse 3 all the way down, all the way down to verse to verse 11, we see the sufferings of Christ. And then in verse 12, we see the glories of Christ that follow those sufferings. And that's, that's what draws us to the Savior. Nothing will draw us off of this world, off of ourself, and away from sin, other than seeing the sufferings and the glories of Jesus. That's the magnet for our souls. That's... That's the attraction of the cross, understanding the nature of those sufferings. Why, why did Jesus have to hang on the cross? What, what was he preeminently doing there? And Isaiah tells us that, that he was bearing our sins. He was being punished for us. He was, he was being chastened under the rod of God's wrath in order to produce peace for us. He was being wounded so that we may be healed. 
What a marvelous thought. By his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Where can I go to get healing for my sinful, filthy, black soul? Where can you go to get healing for your sinful, filthy, black soul? Because that's what we have by nature. We get that healing through the wounds and the stripes of the Lord Jesus. Um, You know, that principle of substitution is everything in this section. He's not suffering for himself. He's suffering for others. He's taking the place of others. I know I've told you this, but I love how we have that illustration of it in, in the narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus. And the people are crying out for Barabbas, a murderer. And, and Jesus is, in a sense, taking the place of one that deserved to die. We deserved to be nailed to the cross. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the strokes of the rod of God's justice. And the essence of what it means for us to say, I'm a Christian, I believe the gospel is for us to acknowledge what we are. Notice Isaiah puts himself in there. There is, there is nowhere that the greatest Old Testament prophet excludes himself from all of the other wicked people in Israel. Remember back when he is called in chapter 6, back at the calling of Isaiah in chapter 6, and, and, and Isaiah has pronounced, Six woes on, on the wicked nation, the woes of God's judgment. And then when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he pronounces that seventh woe. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And notice what he says. Notice this in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way. You know, that, that is maybe the most apt uh, rhetorical explanation of what we are by nature. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. We have every one of us, Isaiah included, turned our own way, but then notice, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, back in the third of the servant songs, I want you to turn over with me, if you would, to chapter 50, just back chapter 50. Notice in verse 5, Or verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Uh, Isaiah will very clearly say his visage, his form was marred more than any man. His form was marred more than any man. What the Lord Jesus suffered, not just in his body, but under the wrath of God, under the darkness of the wrath and the judgment of God, His form was marred more than any man. He was, if I could put it this way, he was disfigured because of our sin. He was disfigured. Listen to this. Sinclair says this. He says, in order to repair the disfigured people of God, the suffering servant will himself have to be disfigured. In order to repair the disfigured 
That's what we are. We are disfigured. Listen, it will not help you one iota for me to say you've got to love yourself more. Again, it's like me sending you to a pharmacy where there is no medicine or to a surgeon who doesn't know how to perform surgery. We, we are the reason Christ came. And he put himself in our place and he took our punishment and he bore our judgment. He took our chastisement. And listen, he did it willingly and he did it perfectly in perfect obedience to the father. Notice this. His obedience for us is part of the attraction. Notice this. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Remember when Pilate and Herod said, answer me, and he would not respond to them. He opened not his mouth because he would be like a sheep before its shears is silent. He would be obedient to the point of death. He would not let anything hinder him from laying down his life obediently in obedience to his father. Um, notice verse eight by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considers that he was cut off? He was cut off. Remember, I told you this morning that circumcision said either God is going to circumcise our hearts and cut away the old nature or you will be cut off. The covenant curses fell on the Lord Jesus. He was cut off. That was the greatest covenant curse. He was cut off. From the land of the living, he was cut off from the covenant people. He was cut off under the curse of God. He became, Paul says, a curse for us. That's what Isaiah is saying. In his obedient sacrifice, he became a curse for us. Now, notice the sinlessness of Jesus again at the end of verse 9. Although he had done no violence. You know, there's almost nothing that marks the Lord Jesus and draws us to him so much as his gentleness, his kindness, his humility. Um, I've, I've talked recently with you about guarding against hard Christianity. Jesus said very stern things, but he was marked by great humility and gentleness. Notice this. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter will pick up on this. He'll say, when he suffered, he did not threaten. If anyone could have threatened those who were were persecuting the Lord Jesus, it is the eternal son of God himself. He did not return evil with evil. When he hung on the cross, he, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If those, if, if Fox News was really a Christian uh, media platform, and it's not, um, they, they would say, Lord, have mercy on everyone. Father, forgive them, the very ones who crucified him. There was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. And then notice the attraction is that he bore the suffering at the hand of his father, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By the way, there are many who call themselves Christian pastors and theologians who will try to tell you that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, is abusive. That God would do that. Well, let me read Isaiah to you again. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. So whenever someone says that, you should run as far and as fast from their fake compassion as you possibly can. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What a marvelous verse. 
It was it pleased God to crush him for you and me. It pleased God to crush his son because of your sin to save us. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Now, the attraction that draws us is not just his sufferings. It's the subsequent glories. Because the Lord Jesus did all of that, what, what Isaiah says is that even as he hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, he was seeing the travail of his soul. He knew that he was an acceptable sacrifice to God on behalf of sinners. And he saw, as it were, the many believers who would be his offspring because of that. And because of all that, God seeing the sole sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God seeing God the Son sacrificing himself and and making a, a suitable sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Notice this. He shall prolong his days. It's the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. Because that sacrifice was accepted, God raised him from the dead. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now listen, by his knowledge of what he had done, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The unrighteous makes many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Um, these are the fruits. These are the, these are the glories. He, he makes us righteous. He, he gives us his righteousness. All we like sheep had gone astray because of our iniquities, because of our transgressions. He will make many righteous. My righteous servant will make many righteous. And then notice this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He will give him the nations for his inheritance. You are his reward. You are the fruit of his labors. If you are one of his blood-bought people, if you have trusted in him, you are the inheritance to Christ. This is astonishing. I was reading, I was reading a, a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on, on this verse in particular, in verse 12, and, and the, the close identity between Christ and sinners for whom he died. And, and sinners being his reward and his portion, because he would redeem them and make them righteous. And as only Spurgeon could say, he said, it's, it sounds wrong. This is going to sound wrong. He says, it almost... It's, it almost seems like we can't say this, but this is what this is what Spurgeon said. The extraordinary glories of Christ as Savior have all been earned by his connection with human sin. Wow. The extraordinary glories of Jesus have all been earned with his connection to human sin. He gets glory because he gets near to sin and to sinners and stands in the place of sinners. Isn't that amazing? Spurgeon says he has gotten his most illustrious splendor, his brightest jewels, his divinest crowns out of coming into contact with this poor fallen race. That's astonishing. God is going to divide him the portion with the strong. 
Because the only reason he came into this world was to rub shoulders with and then stand in the place of sinners. Now, I don't have much more for you. That's not attractive to you. I can't help you. Um, That's the attraction of the cross. Um, The only thing that will ever make us believe in the Lord Jesus is that. And if that won't make us believe in him, nothing will. And if nothing will, then we are among those who are most to be pitied because they have not believed this amazing and excellent message. Now turn back to chapter 52 and I'm sorry. I might have to go back further than that. In one of the four servant songs, we have that great statement that the Apostle Paul picks up in, in Romans chapter 10, in which he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the glad tidings. These are the glad tidings that Isaiah is mentioning in that earlier song. And, and this is the message that draws sinners to Christ. Listen, if you have ever wondered, I, I, I feel the weight of my sin. I, I hate the guilt of my sin. Why did I do that again? And, and will the Lord really forgive me? Will he, really, will he really wash this away? Will he really receive me again? Or will he finally just, just stop receiving me? You come to Isaiah 53, and you see that he has already done everything. And you keep coming back to the suffering servant. You keep coming back to the righteous one. You keep coming back and you keep saying, Lord, this is what's drawing me back again and again and again and again. You know, you think about those that got bitten by the the serpents in the wilderness in Numbers and God had given uh, Moses the instruction to put the bronze serpent on the pole and to hold it up and whoever looked at it would be healed. And all they had to do was look and and, and I imagine that there were many Israelites who were dying of the venomous bite that represented the venom of their sin, and they would not look. And all they had to do was look at him. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. That's, that's, that, that's it. Jesus is being lifted up here by Isaiah, and God is saying, you who have been bruised and broken by the fall, you who have been rebellious, you who have gone astray like lost sheep, you who have lived in unrighteousness and transgressions, look at my suffering servant. His soul was made an offering for sin. His soul is satisfied, and you are now his portion. Isn't that a marvelous thought? You as sinful as you are, are the portion of the one who suffered for you. I hope that you will see something of the attraction of this suffering servant and this glorious exalted servant. And unlike the better part of those Israelites who did not believe and would not believe that you would believe in him, that you would keep trusting in him, that you would abide very close and that you would stay right here. This is where we need to keep it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such a glorious portion of Scripture. Thank you for such a clear sight of your Son. Thank you for making known in 
such a focused and clear and unambiguous way what the Lord Jesus was doing when he hung on the cross. Even so long before he would do that, our God, we thank you and praise you. Would you please grant us that precious gift of faith that we would not be like so many who have rejected him and found him to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We pray that we would find him to be precious, that chief cornerstone of our souls, the one who would fall on us so that we might be broken and healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's by your stripes we are healed. Would you heal us? Would you bind us up? When we wander, would you restore us? Would you encourage us in the knowledge that because of your sufferings, we are a part of your everlasting portion and inheritance? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.